Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Abdurrahman Malik. Abdurrahman is an award-winning journalist, educator, and cultural organizer. In June 2019, he was appointed lecturer and associate research scholar at the Yale Divinity School. He also serves as the program coordinator at Yale University's Council on Middle East Studies and is responsible for developing curricula and partnerships with public schools to promote better cultural, language, and religious literacy about the Middle East to educators and students alike. Abdurrahman also serves as director of the Muslim Leadership Lab, an innovative student leadership program being incubated at the Dwight Hall Center of Social Justice at Yale. He remains programs manager for the Radical Middle Way, which offers powerful, faith-inspired guidance and tools to enable change, combat exclusion and violence, and promote social justice for all. His work has spanned the UK, the United States, Indonesia, Pakistan, Sudan, Mali, Morocco, Singapore, Canada, and Malaysia. Abdurrahman is a frequent journalist for BBC Radio, offering contemporary perspectives on contemporary spirituality. Until 2018, regularly presented the popular Pause for Thought segment on Radio 2 and Something Understood on Radio 4. His most recent essay for Radio 3's Holy Week 2019 was entitled, quote, Behold the Man, end quote. In conjunction with the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto, Abdurrahman will be launching and hosting a new podcast in 2020 entitled, quote, This Being Human, unquote, which will explore a kaleidoscope of contemporary Muslim experience and identity. In addition to providing curation and content guidance to a variety of cultural and literary institutions, Abdurrahman works to create platforms at the intersection of arts and social change. He is committed to building Muslim cultural capital, cultural leadership, and supporting cutting-edge artistic production. In January 2015, he became director, a voluntary position, of the Insight Film Festival, a unique year-round festival that celebrates the intersection between faith and film. He was creative advisor to English touring theater's acclaimed radical re-imaging of Othello from 2016 to 2019 and curated the Othello Project, a multidisciplinary festival of artistic responses to the production. Abdurrahman recently trained over 150 young civil society leaders in Indonesia to use the power of theater and storytelling to bridge interfaith and intercultural divides against the backdrop of violence and discrimination as part of a Google.org-funded initiative called Project Serata. The Duta Serata Young Leaders, I hope I pronounced that correctly, or correctly enough, the Duta Serata Young Leaders have now in turn reached over 1,500 of their peers. The program has now been piloted in the UK and in the Netherlands and is being launched in Singapore in March. 
Abdurrahman was artist in resident at the Doris Duke Foundation's Shangri-La Museum of Islamic Art, Design and Culture in June 2018. During his res residency at Shangri-La, Abdurrahman curated a series of programs and original performances around the theme, quote, What is Muslim Culture? End quote. He serves on the advisory board of the Said Foundation's Amman Museum Cultures and Arts Program Fund. That is the end of the formal bio, and I would like to just add a couple of personal notes. You know, sometimes in life, you're blessed to meet people that the minute you see them, the minute that you're in their presence, you know, you feel this comfort and ease. You feel almost like you are lost friends. And the first time I met Abdurrahman, which was very, you know, a long time ago, almost now nearing on 20 years, I had that feeling, and ever since, Abdurrahman has been one of my closest friends, uh, confidants. I turn to him for advice, for insight. Uh, we laugh, we cry together about you know a whole host of things. We'll get into some of some of those adventures a little bit in in this interview. But he truly is a gem of a person. I I'm very blessed to have him as a part of my life. I'm happy that he is now in North America, a little bit closer uh, to where I am in Washington, D.C. One of the things that I was always lamenting is the distance that was between us. Uh, I'm glad that he's here. I'm glad that he agreed to do this. And this is, uh, you know, it was very hard. It's Sometimes it's hard to talk to people that you're close to. But I think in this episode, we were able to kind of step out of that friendship just for a little bit and try to look at some things critically. You'll notice that when we begin... We kind of begin, as they say in, in literature, uh, medias res, where we're sort of in the middle of, of a scene, because we had been talking for so long, I forgot to hit record. And I was like, oh, Abdurrahman, I got to start recording. Let's, let's start over. And, you know, that just sort of goes to show the kind of friendship that we have. Anyway, without further ado, please enjoy this first conversation with Abdurrahman Malik. Abdurrahman, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to be here, Tarek. Walaikum salam. It's, it's an honor and pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for making the time. Uh, we, we, we had quite an extensive off-the-record conversation. So before we continue recording, I have a lot of things I wanted to ask you. I do want to begin by asking you, you know, maybe a little bit uh, on a somber note, but I, w I would like you to reflect a little bit about uh, the passing of Fuad Nahdi. Uh, who is a dear friend at the time of this recording has been you know passed away about a month ago, and uh, of course I don't I don't know anyone who was closer to him than you. Uh, I actually met him through you, and one of the things that I have commented on since his passing is I, I don't think people in the English speaking world and English here I don't mean Britain I mean the English language I don't think people in the English speaking world Muslim world understand the significance of what Fuad. Uh, did for them, has done for them, uh, and hopefully continues through his legacy. So if you wouldn't mind helping us and, and listeners that might not know anything about Fouad, under, uh, reflect a little bit about his life and legacy. I know I appreciate that opportunity, Tarek. And I, I was, uh, as I was preparing for today, I was thinking back to our uh, our early meetings in those days when 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 you were, were, were trying to get a handle on, on interfaith work in the United Kingdom and Europe and those long conversations we all had and sort of sitting with Fuad over endless cups of tea, um, getting that kind of insight. And, and, you know, the insight that he provided uh, was really based on an incredible lifetime of experience. Um, Fuad Nahdi 
you know, in my life was, um, was one of those personalities uh, to whom I refer back to so often that the paths of my life have gotten kind of gotten lost in the paths of our friendship. Um, I met Fuad in 1995. I was 20 years old. I'd come to London and eager, um, energetic, and probably uh, pretentious student activist of the MSA vein. I walked into the offices of Q News, the magazine that Fuad founded in um, in 1992, and uh, walked in thinking that that uh, you know the red carpet would be rolled out for this this North American activist who was so eager to learn from the experiences of our British brothers and sisters. And I remember it was a Wednesday night, <laughs> and uh, it was just off Regent Street. The office used to be on Conduit Street, uh, j- uh, just below the what became the the Bosnian Embassy, which is an incredible story in and of itself, which has Fouad at the heart of it. And I walked in, and, and everyone in the office was was huddled around this this computer. And uh, I kind of told the secretary who I was, and she said, "Well, go on in and see if anyone will talk to you." And she introduced me to Fouad, and I launched into this big story about who I was and where I was coming from, how excited I was to learn about this magazine that I'd heard about from several people. And he literally looked at me. He goes, "Do you know what day it is today?" And I said, "Wednesday." He goes, "No, it's press day." He goes, you'll have to come back tomorrow. And he turned around and went right back to work. And there was no greetings, no formality. And I remember uh, one of my young cousins was with me. And he said to me, he goes, that was really rude. You you, you should never come back. And I kind of smiled. And I said, I said, you know, uh, press days are big days. I said to my cousin, you know, they got to get a magazine now. I'll come back tomorrow. And I did. I came back on, I came back the very next morning and uh, Fouad was uh, struck up a conversation. He says, you Canadians don't give up, do you? And, uh, and that began kind of a lifelong friendship. And, and I think what people, if there was something that people need to know about Fouad is that he was born in Tanzania, grew up in Mombasa, Kenya, this incredible cosmopolitan city of cultures and, and languages and histories. And yet he was the most Western Muslim, British Muslim I ever knew. Hmm. You know, when he came in 1983 to the United Kingdom to begin working at the Muslim Institute to pursue his degree uh, in journalism and then later his master's at the School of Oriental and African Studies and working at Reuters and, and at that time the Third World Review, which was run by some folks at The Guardian and Africa Events, you know, this was a person who was deeply committed to telling the story of the global Muslim experience. And there was nothing parochial about Fuad. There was nothing narrow about him. That everything, there was, there was a possibility of expansion. And that his soul was this incredible global soul. And, and he could be in any circumstance and he would sort of uh, be fully immersed and present in it. And it helped that he knew so many languages. It helped that he knew so many people. It helped that he was so incredibly well-read. Um, but it also helped that he had the heart of a heart of the compassionate heart of a Muslim. And, and there was that compassionate heart that always, you know, had an embrace for people around him. And very early on, Fuad 
I think, identified, and then through his marriage to Homera Khan, the incredible community organizer, activist, and visionary, together they committed themselves to something that we now call British Islam, um, you know, or it's, it's, uh, it's, it's sisters, American Islam or European Islam. So wholeheartedly, this belief that there was an Islamic expression, uh, an Islamic reality, a sense of uh, community, a sense of experience that was germane to these lands that we were born, that we live in, and that required a different form of community organizing. It, uh, it required a different, uh, a different sensibility um, uh, of journalism. It required a sen different sensibility of reporting. It required a different sensibility of scholarship itself. And I think in some ways, Tarek, you and I, you as a scholar, uh, and I as a, as a student and, and someone who, who is veered towards organizing and activism, I think that we stand on the shoulders of people like Fouad, who forced us very early on and inserted into the DNA of our communities this challenge. How do we maintain tradition and relevancy at the same time? And one of the beautiful things about Fuad and, and, and something that, that has been written about over the last few weeks, but, but I think bears mentioning again, is that Fuad grew up in, in this amazing Hadrami, Kenyan, uh, Yemeni, and Indonesian household. His mother was Hadrami Indonesian and came oh. from Indonesia to marry her dad. I didn't know that. So, oh. Yeah, so he is deeply embedded in um, uh, you know, in Indonesia, in, on the island of Java, and his mother spoke Bahasa Indonesia and Swahili. Hmm. Um, his father was, you know, was 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 a trader, and so understood East Africa so well. But Fuad's neighbor was uh, Habib Ahmad Mashur al Haddad. Wow! And, wow. and, and so Fuad grew up in a religious milieu that had at its heart one of the great spiritual personalities of our age. Mm, mm. He, his relationship with Habib Ahmed Lashur was, was that of a father and son. Um, and Fuad's father himself had studied at the Rabat in Tarim. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and so... And so when, when you know, Fuad in his, as, uh, you know, in his days of Q News or before that when he established Muslim Wise or after when, when he established and we were together in the work of Radical Middle Way, people would often remark on Fuad's contrarianness, his ability to always go against the grain, to push buttons and envelopes, to, to, to drive uh, people into areas of conversation that were deeply uncomfortable. And yet he was able to do that because I have known few people in my life whose foundation was so strong. It was like encased in the concrete of this tradition. And so Fouad could ask the difficult questions. Fouad could ask the difficult political, social, but also religious questions. Mm. He could ask the difficult theological questions. He could seem irreverent and be irreverent, to be honest. And yet behind that was this incredible foundation bedrock of faith, which never, I never saw it shift. In the 25 years I knew him, there was something so spiritually sound always. 
and he and and I think his challenge to me as as a, as a friend and uh, as someone who uh, I had the privilege to be, he mentored me, and that was a privilege for me. You know, I think that was his challenge to me. Often, he goes, "Be irreverent. Ask the difficult questions. Um, go against the grain. Don't be fearful of what others will say, but know that you're right with God. Know that you're right with the Prophet." He says, "If you're right with Allah and the Prophet, he says, go for it." But if you're not right with Allah and the Prophet, hold back. Hold back. So, Abdurrahman, I mean, for the first time in, in all of these years, I think you've articulated in the last few minutes my experience with, with Fuad. I mean, that's what you just said is perhaps the greatest lesson I took from all of those trips and all of those hours, you know, up and, you know, staying up to the wee hours of the night with you and Fuad in, in London and, and Cambridge talking about these issues is really how to be comfortable in your own skin uh, as a person of faith, uh, that there's nothing wrong with that, it works, uh, and use that as fuel to maintain your other identities. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that. No, I, I, I appreciate the opportunity, Tarek. And inshallah, khair, you know, over the next few weeks and months, um, uh, Fouad's uh, wife, uh, Homera, son Nader, who's incredible, uh, you know, incredible personality, uh, creative artist, thinker. Um, Ilya is their, their incredible daughter. Um, and the group of friends are going to continue to be thinking very deeply about what this legacy means. And inshallah, it would be wonderful to have yourself and, and all the beloveds from around the world uh, be part of this um, this family that we're already part of uh, to continue to take these ideas and, and, and his vision forward. Inshallah. One of the things that struck me the most uh, about Fuad when I met him is maybe I got to see the results of his hard work because when I met you guys, he seemed to be very plugged in with the British establishment. I, I'm assuming when he came to England, you know, in, in the early 80s, he was not <laughs> plugged in at, you know, no. at all. So I got to see the, the you know, the, the, the results of all of those hard works. But I, I, was, yeah. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what that kind of access, what that kind of access does for the type of work that we're, we're all interested in. Because in the United States, it's a little bit different. The U.S. is a bigger country. It's the government is, it seems like it's bigger and more elusive and, uh, but in England, it's like, I don't know, you kind of feel like, yeah, it's, you know, the guys down the corner, you can, you can go see the prime minister, like no big deal. Uh, I made it look very easy uh, at times in terms of access. But, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. I think it comes back first to that question of confidence, that, that to have that kind of access, you also have to be terribly confident about, about where you are, who you are, and where you stand. Fuad had that access to, you know, um, leadership within the Church of England or leadership within political parties or leadership within government structures, despite being the the contrarian journalist <laughs> besides being at times terribly controversial um but uh, uh, you know in spite of his 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 critiques of various political administrations and that's because i think there is something about certain elements of the political institutional establishment in the United Kingdom that knows that that's the that's the kind of the 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 the, the attack and parry 
of public life. You know, you're always going to be engaged mm. in, in, in argument and, uh, and debate over what's happening. I think what Fouad did was he just reached out. You know, part of it was just he, he'd pick up the phone. He'd call. He'd, um, he'd make himself known. I think it really helped. And I think this is a, this is a bit of the, the trick, Tarek. It helped running a media organization. Hmm. It helped uh, founding uh, multiple magazines. And Q News ran for 15 years and was, was so independent, was, was so unconnected to any aspect of the, of the British Muslim establishment, let alone the British establishment, that people kind of feared it at times. Uh, it was a wild card in the scene, and it was so bold because it was tackling issues of social and political policy that Muslims hadn't really tackled in that way before and wasn't coming from a particular institutional camp, was a journalistic organization asking difficult questions that journalists ought to be asking. That won Fuad a great deal of respect. Mm. Also, Fuad didn't start as a Muslim journalist. You know, he wrote, uh, you know, for um, his student newspapers in, in, in Kenya. He reported from places like Iran after the revolution. He was there in 1980, 81, reporting on the ground as, as, as Iran was, was sort of emerging from the cataclysmic events of 1979. He reported from places like the Sudan. He worked ultimately for Reuters on their, you know, on their on their well-known international fellowship. He worked for Africa events. He worked for uh, magazines like Crescent International. So he had an experience of journalism that was forged in journalism. Mm. You know, uh, people uh, might not know this name, but I think some of us who follow uh, American letters will. Godfrey Hodgson. The, the, the biographer of the Kennedys and, and the great uh, celebrated American correspondent from the Observer newspaper in London was Fouad's a mentor oh, wow. at City University. So, so that access to, uh, to, to kind of even the institutional personalities of British journalism was something that he had at a, at a very young age as he was training to be a journalist. And then I think the second part of it is Tarek, something that, that speaks to, I think, our shared faith so much and that we just forget. And I sometimes I feel like I forget, but sometimes I feel like our co-religionists forget. Hospitality. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's so simple, yeah, isn't it? Just be nice. Yeah, just be nice. It says hospitality. Offer food and drink. Offer an opportunity for a meal together. Present a gift. Recognize when people have days of success and recognize those moments of success. Pick up the phone even for five minutes to say, how are you? It's your birthday today. I heard that you had a child. Um, I heard that you're going through a difficult time. Fuad was so good at that. Yeah, he was. And, and he it was. wasn't about business, you know? He wouldn't call and say, hey, let's meet up to talk about the next project. It was something so sincere about just human connection. And, you know, I, I think you and us know that Dale Carnegie figured that out, you know, decades and decades ago. Sure, yeah. Be nice. Be, just uh, be nice and caring, but don't do it in a utilitarian way. Yeah, I think do I found... Do, do it in a prophetic way. Yeah, in, in, on, on that note, I found that a lot of people just carry a lot of fear and anxiety. I mean, you know, myself included. And 
uh, sometimes being nice is a good way just to deconstruct that because you let people know that you can connect with them as a human. Mm. You know, even even people that you might have disagreements with, but you know, totally. it doesn't it doesn't stop you from just ask, like you said, just asking out and being human, uh, because we're all human. We're all going to share those things as well. And, and and all of a sudden, everything changes. The tenor changes, and I think that's what it was. And and I and the third thing I'll say is that when Fuad engaged with those spaces, he 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 honored institutions. You know, I think there's something in me, and Fuad knew that about me because I think I think he he was that way in his youth. He knew there was something that, that that was always I you know I'm I'm a, I'm a product of my Marxist political education at the University of Toronto you know there's something <laughs> in me that 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 resists against systems as as my first you know that's my first gambit resist yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, dissent you know and but there was something that I learned from Fouad which was you don't have to agree in the hist- his historical reality of these systems, but you have to respect the way in which things work. Mm. And, and, you know, Fouad had, a, had an enduring respect for, not necessarily for what the institutions did, but, but for what they represented. And he respected those who occupied space in those institutions, even as much as he disagreed with them. That's a difficult, that's a difficult balance to keep. Mm. Can I respect can I respect this edifice that has been created that provides peace, security, systems of function for a state, for a society, while at the same time being engaged in it and being deeply disturbed often by what it by what it produces? And I saw him in the House of Lords and I was with him, you know, the day that he spoke to the General Synod of the Church of England, the first Muslim. Uh, I was honored to be his uh, the aide de camp, so to speak, you know, uh, to be his his plus one. And um, I remember, and I'll I'll share this as a thought that uh, I remember sitting um, in the room behind the stage of the of the of the assembly chamber of the General Synod. And there was a lot of nervousness that day because there had been a number of articles in the in the days coming up to Fouad's presentation at the General Synod, the highest council of the Church of England, and he being the first Muslim ever to have entered it formally to speak to it. Um, there had been a lot of conservative Christians who had been incredibly nasty um, about the decision that the uh, Archbishop uh, Justin Welby had taken. Sure. Um, and I remember sitting behind uh, in, in the room and Fouad was there and we were reviewing his notes and people were coming in and out. And I knew that there were some people in that room that were that were, were just not happy about this decision and others that were in. And then Archbishop Welby came in and I remember Fouad got up and in a very cheeky way, you know, Took uh, took Justin's uh, Justin Welby's head and just uh, did a very almost it was a scene from from like a like a period drama <laughs> where he took, he took his head and he went, he went like this <laughs> and and everyone broke out laughing you know <laughs> everyone everyone cracked out because it was it was this it's this, it was this great Archbishop Welby for all his faults is not a very formal personality at all oh, he's, a former, he's not, not he's at a all. former he's a former oil executive you yeah. know that yeah, you know yeah. him. Um, <laughs> and, and everyone just kind of broke. It was just it's, it was these little things. And yet when Fouad came into the chamber and I sat right behind him, uh, I had his notes on him. He sat down and I put his notes in front of him. You know, he said something that day, uh, which was which he also wrote in The Guardian. He said, I, I, I enter 
this place as I would have entered the house of Jesus of Nazareth mm. uh, with my head bowed and in honor. Mm, mm. Ah, it just broke every. You know, no, you no Muslims. Just, Muslims don't talk like that usually. No, Muslims <laughs> don't talk like that. And yet, here was knowing that this was how significant it was for this particular religious institution and for the annals of the history of the of England and the United Kingdom. It was such a beautiful thing to say, and you could almost feel like everyone just relax a little bit. And 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 people. Uh, the one thing that that, that that I'll say finally is that. On that day, what did Fuad speak about? He spoke about the defense of Christians in Muslim lands. Yeah. That's what he spoke about. He said, I is a Muslim. He says, he says, he stood for that. And it was, it was, it was really a remarkable day. And I think that day in many ways, like it, it was a culmination of all these lessons mm. of engagement, you know, that this is what it leads to. And that it wasn't an imam of a mosque who was asked to speak that day, which was very unusual. Yeah. And I know there was there was there was jealousy within the Muslim community around sure, that. Sure, sure, yeah, uh, without a doubt. Um, the, he was not the head of, of 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 any council or national organization. It was Fouad, the the journalist, the the interlocutor, the the activist, um, the friend of the church. They invited a friend of the church to speak. And that means something. That that there's a lesson in that. Sure, friend. There's a lesson in friendship, especially if people remember the history of the of the Anglican Church. That's a that's a big yeah. deal. It's a big deal to to have. It's a big deal that invitation and to refer to him as a friend of the church. Well, I hope yeah. every time we meet, we can remember at least I mean, one one funny story of <laughs> Fuad, and you know, pray to the Almighty that He bless him and. Uh, and and bless his soul and uh, I, I I continue to say we are in debt so much in debt to to the, his legacy and I hope that we can live up to that legacy. Now just shifting gears a little bit, you 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 mentioned this word you know journalist a lot. When I first met you, you were you know I mean I guess you still are a journalist, but you were very much a journalist then. And coming from the world I come, you know, just to be transparent, we're we're not we're not taught to you know revere journalism or journalists. Um, you know the scholarly community they're not they don't think very very highly of the news <laughs> of course just, i'm just putting it very lightly and, and tamely so can you tell me a little bit i mean i say that jokingly of course i i, I respect the, the idea behind it but could you if you could help me understand what does it mean to be a muslim journalist especially at the time that you were really active the type of journalism that you engage and why it's still important uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, it's it's such an intriguing question. I'm glad you framed it that way, um, Sethotic, because I, I do feel like like it's true. I think there is a we have a natural, and, and it's because a, a kind of a, a, a natural sense of caution when we approach not only journalism but when we approach journalists. Sure. And, and and I've had enough encounters. Uh, Horrible and terrible encounters with journalists. To, to totally agree with you, I'm an accidental journalist. You know, I started. Um, I remember my first foray was probably when I was in grade school. You know, mm. it was like grade three or five. You know, when I started a, a newspaper at my at my school, and everyone thought, "Who is this kind of geeky, pretentious, awkward kid starting a newspaper?" But it was it was fun. You know. We produced, you know, five or six pages and told little stories from what was happening around the school. And and then I produced a Muslim uh, youth uh, um, kind of newsletter when I was in, when I was in high school. And, and when I got to university, I started writing um, 
for some of the campus publications. And during that time, this uh, is in Toronto. There was there was a there was a um, a publication that 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 was founded at the University of Toronto called the Muslim Voice, and it was. Uh, a, a, Founded by a colleague and, and, and friend with whom I went to school for Azerbani, and uh, and he asked me to he asked me to write for it, and uh, I said sure, sure. I, at that time, I was kind of figuring out what my relationship with the Muslim community at the University of Toronto would be, and um, I started I started writing for it, and, and that was a wonderful experience, which, which uh, because it, it just forced me to write quite regularly, and some of my pieces got picked up by. Um, publications outside of, of, of the Muslim scene. So uh, one of our one of our local um, newspapers in Toronto uh, picked up a piece that I'd written about Bosnia Muslims in the Holocaust. And, and that sort of that, that was sort of interesting for me because it was an opportunity to have my writing more widely read and, and feedback came and um, it all kind of culminated in 1998 when, uh, at the age of 23, I was asked by the Toronto Star whether I would be interested in uh, putting forward a few pieces to um, to take on the position of uh, a columnist in their religion and spirituality section that I would write every four or five weeks, um, uh, approximately a 950-word piece on whatever I wanted from a kind of a perspective of a, of a Muslim. And so I, I wrote a few pieces and they were incredibly well received. Alhamdulillah. And so I wrote for the Toronto star from 1998 to 2003. Um, it was, it was a, it was an incredible experience for me because it meant that in a way it helped me begin to develop my voice as how, how do we become translators? And you know this so well, Tarek, because you've been in those spaces so much over the last decade, decade and a half. How do you become a translator mm. of your community's experience, tradition, theology, um, messiness, yeah. and then uh, and then have it make sense, right, to those who are outside of it? And you no, know, once again, I have Fouad to thank for that because in 1995 I'd met him in London and he had asked me to write for Q News. And so I used to spend my summers in London working at the office and sleeping on Fouad and Homer's couch, um, uh, working at the magazine and being immersed in that world of, 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 of producing journalism from within a Muslim frame. So I had wonderful training, really. Um, around sort of as this this kind of experience of being the interlocutor and the translator, um, 9/11 I think was a turning point for me, where um, I was immediately asked because of this Toronto Star gig and because of other community work I was engaged in to to be kind of the the quote unquote professional Muslim, and we've all been there, haven't we? <laughs> oh know, yeah, yeah. There, there's there's a time in your life in our lives when myself, Farina, people like yourself were asked. What's your job? And we're like I'm Muslim. No, it says no, no. What's your job? No, that's my job. I'm my job is to be professional a Muslim. Muslim yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm a fresh. I'm a professional Muslim. Um, uh, here's my rate card. <laughs> uh, you know. So, so I, I think like for us, that that experience of 9/11 for me became you know that that opportunity or or the the imposition of being a professional Muslim. And it was during that time that the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, I knew many people who worked there, including the amazing Nazim Baksh, who was, who was also a mentor, continues to be a, a very close personal friend, um, you know, uh, that I was asked to produce a, a radio piece around Ramadan. Um, and it was called Ramadan at Ground Zero. 
And Alhamdulillah, it was the first radio piece I produced. It was very atmospheric. It was a bit artistic. You know, it was me wandering around New York for three days uh, with a tape and a, and a microphone, uh, just taking in sound and my impressions. And I did some interesting interviews. And I went to Ground Zero and, and, and made Fatiha there and tried to remember all the, the, the believers who had also passed away in this, in this moment and being surrounded by especially that jingoistic culture of grief that surrounded 9-11 at that point and, and, and being in that kind of space, um, you know, uh, uh, we produced something really, really, I thought really powerful. Alhamdulillah was nominated for a Peabody Award, um, which was, which was a kind of a wonderful beginning, you know, to a career. It's nice to, nice to, nice to be nominated for something right at the beginning. And, and then you kind of feel, oh, it's, it, you know, my work has value. And I, I won't lie, it was, it was an important part of it. And then in 2003, when I when I came back, when I when I came to the UK, and, and after I married Farina, and Farina was a journalist, and 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 I started working at Q News, the time was such tonic. And, and you remember those heady times. I think there's a there's a definitely a millennial Gen Z generation that 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 I think still kind of struggles to understand the experience of their older brothers and sisters and now parents um, with what happened at that particular moment. But there was a lot of demand, like they, like people wanted to know what was going on with Muslims and especially in the lead up to the Iraq war and, and, and then the aftermath of it and the, the, the July 7th, 2005 attacks in London, all of a sudden I became a reporter. You know, I was reporting for the CBC. I was doing production for CNN. I was doing a lot of kind of on the job stuff, uh, but also on the air stuff and Farina was as well. And, you know, she was writing cover stories for, for Newsweek, and, and it was such a heady time. And yet, and, and right behind that, you know, was people like Fouad and, and Nazim that we were going to and throwing our articles towards, and, and, and we were running Q News. I learned on the job. My, my sense of journalism was really on the job. And also my sensibility around journalism was so different um, because I always saw my journalism connected to identity and to campaigning. Um, so even as I was reporting a story, I was always really conscious about how the story is being reported. And, and you know, I had, I had people like Fouad sort of pushing me to, to say, you know, get out of your own head. Get out of, you're not defending a position. Tell the story and then provide context for people on it, you know. Um, I always just ask Fouad, you know, what's, what's the secret? Because Fouad was a brilliant writer. He, said, he says, I'll tell you the secret. Um, uh, it's uh, three words. Bum on chair. <laughs> you gotta write. You gotta write. You gotta sit down. You gotta write. You gotta write every day. You gotta be engaged. You gotta be reading. Fouad would say, the, well, it's also one of the best advice I ever got. He says, choose a magazine and choose a newspaper and read it religiously. Learn the way that makes an author a publication tick. How do they write? What are the mechanics of their reporting? You don't have to like it. He says, if you don't like it, it's better. He says, because then you won't focus on the content, you'll focus on the craft. Mm-hmm. And, and so Fouad would, uh, would, uh, so would read, for example, the Evening Standard every day. And he had certain columnists that he'd read every week. People like A.N. Wilson, for instance. Fouad would read A.N. Wilson every week for 30 years. Why? Because he appreciated that person's writing wanted to know what made them tick and it makes you a better writer. And so I learned on the job. Um, it was, and, and then as my work, both in the community and in kind of journalistic circles, um, 
kind of grew and I had more opportunities. Um, it was about 10 years ago, actually. It was 10 years ago. Um, that I was approached by the former head of uh, religion at the at the BBC, a friend of yours and a friend of mine, Michael Wakelin, um, who said, you know, we'd really like to have you um, have uh, uh, to, for you to think about doing a piece for us. And and um, I started doing Pause for Thought, uh, which is a, a very quirky British institution, a daily spiritual reflection, which so airs let me, let me stop all you the right, morning programs. Let me pause <laughs> you right there. One of the happiest, sure. happiest, like most exciting moments was when I was in England, woke up in the morning listening to the radio, and there's your voice. On <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. I know this guy. This is amazing. Uh, I mean, it was like, I love that Pause for Thought. I thought, I think it's brilliant. I did too, and I still love it. You know, it's it's um, one of my uh, regrets about not being uh, back, back home in the UK is, is is that I I can't do it anymore. But it's such a beautiful thing. It's three hundred and seventy five words, a little under three minutes on the air, a live to air scripted spiritual reflection, and it's called the God Slot. You know, yeah, yeah. it's this quirk of, of British broadcasting, the BBC Charter, the, the Church of England's overarching culture, the fact that the Queen is the head of state, you know, um, and, and the head of the church at the same time. You know, uh, British listeners of morning BBC radio from the early morning um, to the mid morning to the late morning get several pauses for thought. And I was so privileged because I, I did the early morning show and then I started doing the, the main breakfast show. And I was lucky enough to become the main breakfast show on a Friday, which is the day that all the celebrity guests were in. And listener numbers were like between 9 and 12 million. Nice. Uh, the, most the most popular radio program in the country. And right into that, you know, was this opportunity to say something about life and faith and tradition to invoke the name of the prophet uh, upon whom be peace to, to name the sages to, to speak about something that was close to it was, it was an honor um to to do that and um and it was it was great and so radio became my love really mm. for the last 10 years and so most of my journalistic work besides a few written pieces here and there have, have largely been radio uh, that's why i love this podcasting format i love the intimacy of conversation we can be so far away from each other but there's something about voice and and, and, and presence and talking that's so beautiful about radio and I, and I love the idea of getting into someone's ear you know yeah, um, yeah. and 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 being able to to sit there and and to and to kind of meditate with their thoughts and, and i mean not not to be too sacrilegious but you know, Re revelation is something that is based on sound and and, and listening and reciting. That's that no no that, that's not sacrilegious at all. The the written is, form comes you know second. So, so this is our so in a way what you're saying is this is our like our physical and spiritual DNA, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think for us to like hear yeah. a message and to be moved by the power of words. Yeah. Uh, and and to be able to craft words in such a way that you elicit uh, emotions from somebody, I think, is very powerful. It's one of the most powerful experiences there is. No, I, I I'm I'm with you about that, and 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 it's so interesting because, I mean, it's interesting how we internalize words and language, and how the music of language sort of resonates in us, and and you know, uh, yeah, there's something really profound, uh, uh, profound about that about the way that we internalize these things that we that we hear in the internal conversation that we have sure. which is this which is this this beautiful thing and I love that about about radio is that and and and, and voice and sound because we're able to have that internal conversation and so so radio became something that that um 
uh, I became not just fascinated by, but dedicated to. And so most of my work as a journalist, and I've been lucky, thought I have to say, I'm, I'm, it's unusual. I've been lucky to really have, um, you know, to, to pitch my own programs through various uh, independent companies, to shape the kind of stories I want to do, to, to guide the interviews that I want to be part of like you know I've, I've i've been lucky to do that because for me it's 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 it's, it's part of part of my hustle as uh, among the things that i that i do alhamdulillah and, and um i'm 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 really grateful and i'm grateful to all those um men and women and i've had some amazing producers uh, i do want to mention michael of course uh but also i had an amazing producer who passed away of cancer a few years ago rosemary foxtrot and she was my first producer when i started doing pause for thought and she was the producer on a on a documentary i did called faith in 9-11 on the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 uh, attacks and rosemary was fascinating she was old school she was a faithful woman uh she was old school bbc producer Mm. Um, it was, it was, it was about pithiness. It was about the sharpness of language. It was about the crispness of delivery. And, you know, she, in, in those, in those uh, 10 years ago, when we started working together, it, she was the one who pushed me. She pushed me. She pushed me. She she edited my pieces. I'd be so frustrated with my scripts, which, which I was so proud of, of course, you know, being in arrogant, pretentious person <laughs> would come back with all these markings on them. And then I'd, I'd, I'd re-engage them and, you know, shout some swear words into my sleeve and, and, and go back into it. And then realizing, of course, that Rosemary was right. Of course she was right. She, she had the experience to be right. Rewriting, putting your, your, your ego on the block is an essential part of this process. Mm. Um, I don't feel sad anymore when I write something and I cut out a paragraph. Uh, it'll always exist on my computer somewhere yeah. uh, if I ever need to come back to it. But the truth is, most paragraphs that I thought that were good and I cut, I've never gone back to. Because the truth was that they didn't need to be there. The message could be pithier. The message could be sharper. The message could be more clear. I could get to the point. And there's something about writing short pieces is about getting to the getting to the point. I love talking and long conversations that's different but 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 that kind of radio is a different different medium so the challenge of writing 375 words um you know 25 or 30 times a, a year um was something that i i learned so much from so i want to ask you something just to go back to something you said about you know your early days as a journalist having to in a way translate and communicate a certain identity while I'm not a journalist, I, I definitely feel that I do a lot of that and have done a lot of that. And I want to ask you this question and see if you, if you agree with me or not, that unfortunately, I feel our scholars are very bad at doing that. And, and I cringe. I mean, till this day, I absolutely cringe anytime one of our top scholars is like on the news or about to say something to the news. I feel like we, 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 you know, somebody's got to come to the rescue and like be a filter. You know, Tariq, uh, sadly, you are right. Uh, I agree with you. I know you and I have had many moments in the past where we've been at places, conferences, where we're just, we're just waiting, you know, we're just waiting and hoping and praying that, 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 that whoever is speaking will get it right. Some are better than others, of course. Um, you know, I think Tarek, and I think this is something that 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 needs to be said. And 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 you know that over the past few years, 
the conversations that that we've had, that you and I have had, uh, and shared very openly with one another. Um, a lot of those conversations, I know from my point of view, have been about, I guess, my own disappointments um, with religious leadership, uh, my own disappointments in scholarly discourse. Um, you know, how do we come to terms with a world that's so complex, changing so quickly, has so many variables, and yet maintain that 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 balance between um, uh, being able to communicate and hold to the foundations, the life-giving foundations of faith, while at the same time having the flexibility to engage with the world fully, because we are part of that world and God has placed us in that in that world and in the space. Um, that's why people like you are so important, <laughs> frankly. And, and so many of those that are like you are f- people like our friends, Nuri Friedlander and others who engage in these spaces because, because we need those translators. And in many ways, Fuad, people like Naz and Baksh, so many others are, are, are translators. Um, why is that the case? I think part of it is, is that religious leadership and scholarship does not necessarily translate into contemporary understandings. Um, those are those are difficult grounds to, to, to be in. And I think that religious leadership and scholarship must challenge itself and must stress test itself. I like this word stress test. I find myself using it a lot more. I feel like our young Muslim activists, you know, when I, I run, help run the leadership lab at, at, at Yale for Muslim students and, 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 I, and I talk in the first class, I said, I said, this lab is a stress test. We want to stress test your ideas, your faith. We want to move you into uncomfortable spaces and then help answer the uncomfortable question. Because if you don't stress test your faith, what is your faith worth? And I feel like a lot of our religious leadership has not been stress tested. Um, and it shows those who have and those who, those who have not. I want to give you one example of a very interesting stress test and something that, that in my mind goes back to a number of strands in, in my life. And I, and I think, I think you'll appreciate this. I remember during the, uh, the, the, the great cartoon controversy around the Danish cartoons uh, the, in the early 2000s, um, that there were a number of scholars who engaged in that space and in, in kind of shuttle diplomacy between Denmark and the Middle East and Muslim Europe and, 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 and non-Muslim Europe. And there's so much happening and so much being said about free speech and, and respect and all those things. And I, I remember um, I traveled through Denmark for a time with uh, with Habib Ali al-Jifri, and uh, there were other scholars around during that time. And, and I wrote a piece about it, a cover story in Q News, um, about my experiences of seeing uh, scholarly personalities engage in these broader issues of... Um, these broader issues around uh, around freedom of speech and freedom of religion and, and ideas of respect. And I learned a lot from that experience and I learned a lot from Habib Ali and I, I, I'm, I'm today grateful to him and forever grateful for those experiences. But then we came back to London and Habib Ali um, and others had started working on a kind of a statement to, to, to translate Muslim 
Islamic feelings about the sanctity, the sacredness of the prophet into a European, broadly a Western context. And Fuad at that time did something really fascinating. He said, okay, Habib Ali is coming to London. He has this document with him. He said, Abdurrahman, let's, uh, let's gather together the best journalists and commentators and writers that we can get our hands on. And I remember it was a Thursday afternoon in the basement of a Turkish restaurant in Farringdon. We had The Guardian there. We had news, uh, uh, journalists from Newsweek, English Pen, Index on Censorship, the New Humanist magazine, the Atheist magazine. We had, we had columnists for newspapers, uh, former religion writer for The Independent, former senior editor for The Independent. We had about 15 journalists. So, so just, just, to, just to pause for a second, so people understand the significance of being able to get all of those people in one room <laughs> yes. is short of a miracle. I mean, there are, there are countries, countries that pay tens of millions of dollars to strategic communication firms just to be able to do that. So the fact that you guys were able to do that on Thursday afternoon... That itself is a miracle, just so people it, understand. It, 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 it's, 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 it's important that you say that because I didn't <laughs> even think of that. But it's true. It, you look back on it, it's like, how did we do it? Um, and, and we got everyone in the room. And, and what we had done was we had sent everyone an English translation of this document that Habib Ali had been working on. And we distributed it. And they came, and I could see it. I mean, we knew some of these people as friends. We knew them as colleagues. Some of them we didn't know at all, but we knew. Um, I remember that a reporter for the BBC radio was there as well. Um, the community's reporter for BBC radio. Um, and wow, we had our nice Turkish meal, but that quickly moved into intense questioning. Mm. They went paragraph by paragraph probing with great respect. I have to say the journalists should, so said respect. And I think that was also part of it. We also, in, we also expect that people like this are going to not have respect for religious authority mm. and religious authority comes into those spaces saying that I'm going to be disrespected, but that wasn't what happened at all. I actually felt in the room, incredible respect. And it was like, you know, Habib, we've read this and we have concerns. We want to understand your position. And they stress tested that document for two hours. And Habib took notes. The people who were with him took notes. He responded. They responded. At the end of it, there was, there was such a feeling of camaraderie in that room. Hmm. And I saw what had happened. That was the stress test. And did we pass the test? No. Some of it did. Some of it did not. But what resulted in that room was a deep appreciation from Habib Ali, which I, I, I always expected and always know because that's his personality in so many ways, is he so appreciated that opportunity to push. And he encouraged them. He says, be, be irreverent, be difficult with me. I, I, I need it. I, I want it. I want to know how you feel. And they left. And, and one of the, I will always remember what the former head of the Index on Censorship said to me, she was walking out, older lady, a uh, kind of a, a legend in, 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 in journalistic circles. And she said to me, she goes, she goes, um, that was an incredibly special afternoon because that doesn't happen very often. Uh, and she said, I want you to tell your teacher that he's a very special man. Um, 
And I knew what she meant. That opportunity to sit with, mm. to engage with, to be heard and to hear is something that, as you said, in our times of, of great you know, conflict, ideological conflict, mm. political conflict, intellectual battle, right? This was an opportunity, almost like a loya jirga. You know, everyone left their, <laughs> everyone left their, everyone left their swords and their AK forty sevens and their Kalashnikovs, um, uh, their M sixteens at the door, mm. and everyone came and enjoyed a meal, and everyone talked. So that would be an example of when that worked. When, it, when it worked when exactly, the but, that's the, but but that's the kind of effort that uh, and, and my, my reason for telling is that's the kind of effort that's needed to make it work. And I just feel that so few uh, members of our religious leadership are willing to uh, almost humble themselves mm. to 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 that um, to that level of scrutiny. Um, and but that's what's needed, and I think what is also needed is this: is the, is the next generation, people like yourselves and other women and men of, of scholarship and learning who are deeply invested in community, in the tradition, but also deeply invested in our in our world and and the sanctity of of, of life and the world and the nations that we live in and the communities that we live in to constantly be engaged in that process of being interlocutors, of being translators, but not merely translator city, because you and I know that translation is not a, uh, a, uh, a you know, is an, is not an IO system. It's not an in out system. Yeah, you yeah. throw something in and it comes a translation is development. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it is the expansion. It is, it is making things relevant. So they now have the possibility to uh, adapt, evolve, change, grow, deepen, uh, their aspiration becomes bigger than the thing that you put in. Isn't that what is amazing about tradition? That tradition has the capacity, is not merely, um, uh, it's not an idol. Yeah. Our tradition isn't an idol. I don't worship the tradition. It's not the golden calf. The, 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 the tradition is organic, it grows, it adapts, it evolves, it builds, it, it, has, it has greater aspiration. That's what, that's what the tradition should be like. We've made, we've, we've, there's elements of our community that have fetishized tradition. Yeah, tradition yeah. has become a fetish that we, that we hold onto, that we beat ourselves up with or we pleasure ourselves with. That's not the purpose of it. Yeah. This human endeavor that that you've spent a lifetime to be engaging in, um, this human endeavor is God's gift to us. It's the use of our spiritual and intellectual faculties to understand what God wants from us in every moment, and every time, under every challenge, in every circumstance, with the the people who are around us. You know, mm. and so that I think that work, the work of translation, that 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 you and others are engaged in, is vital. It is important. It is, it, it, I mean, it's it 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 deserves not only our support, but it 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 deserves to be amplified. That this is this is actually the kind of work that you're doing. This is this is the mechanics of of what it means to live Islam today. So on that, uh, by way of segue, I want to read to you this quote. Do you know uh, Stephen Pressfield? Yeah, the, the, the war, uh, war of Art. Okay. So he says, the professional, meaning the professional artist does not permit himself to become hidebound within one incarnation, however comfortable or successful. So, you are a professional, and you are 
you are in you know in in the midst of a new incarnation uh so if if we step into the present uh i'd love to to know more about what you're doing at yale i mean of course you're still doing journalism i don't mean to say that you've left something in no yale, no but, not at all but no. you are you know metamorphosizing if you could if that's even a word uh into something new and and beautiful inshallah uh if you could share with us what you're doing at yale it's uh, you know i i uh it's uh i often find it very difficult to to describe my cv um i i a a quick funny story and then i'll jump into to to my new haven life a little bit um about a year two years ago there was an interesting job opening in toronto so i kind of said to myself let's apply for it so i finally put together a cv and a cover letter something i hadn't done in a few years and i and i sent it in and it was through a recruitment agency and the recruiter called me and he goes, uh, he goes, we really like it, but we don't understand it. <laughs> could, you, <laughs> could, could you jump in on a call and explain it to us? I said, sure. And it was a really interesting experience trying to explain it because the recruiter was kind of like, I-, I believe you, but it's just, it, it's pretty multifaceted. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And and it just made me think that, you know, that once again is just something, alhamdulillah, uh, all praise due to Allah and, and, you know, gratitude abundant and eternal for, for, for the gift of life and the gifts of friendship and, and the gifts and opportunities that we've been given. I feel like um, I've had an opportunity to be many things and, and to utilize the experiences I've had in, in many different ways. I came to Yale in 2017, August, as a Yale World Fellow. Um, it, it's, a, it's a global fellowship program for kind of mid-career leaders, in inverted commas. And I was uh, lucky enough to be selected. I'd had uh, friends who had been part of the program before, and I know it was uh, part of my selection was really, um, I'm thankful to their, to their, to their um, recommendations. Um, it was a rigorous process to get in and, you know, several thousand people apply and 16 get in. And so it was a real honor for me. And it was only supposed to be five months. And um, although I think Fouad knew it would be longer, uh, he he threw me a going away party with some friends and and, and, and Farina and Abdi as well, because we all came together. And uh, and he, he he kind of intimated to me that that uh, this is a goodbye from, from uh, the UK in some ways. And I said, no, no, I'll be back in January. And I wasn't, of course. I remember you telling me that. You telling me that you know, <laughs> it's, only, it's only a few months and I'll be back. Only a few months, exactly. And and so the World Fellow Year was amazing. And it was such an honor for me to be at Yale. My, I remember calling my dad. Uh, all all um, immigrant parents will understand this. I, I called my father and I said, said Abu, uh, I got the fellowship at, at, at Yale. And there was silence on the other end of the phone. And then when he spoke up, he said, finally, one of my underachieving children made the Ivy Leagues. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh I love it. You know, I, I can frame that, man. I need to frame that. That's, that's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> so, so that's what I got, you know, and, and, and I was lucky. I mean, I came here. I did a lot of programming. I kind of really jumped in uh, feet first into into Yale life and realized that uh, in this fellowship, I had such an opportunity to bring my worlds together um, <clears throat> with Yale scholars and students and, you know, be able to mentor and, 
and and that was a wonderful experience. And I started thinking a lot about the Muslim community here at Yale. And the United States has been no stranger to me. I mean, having been born and grown up in Canada, so much time in the United States, I've always felt. And I, in fact, I vows to be honest, so many of my ideas about the world have been shaped by people who, who were kind of born out of the American experience, whether that was Malcolm X or, or you know, um, Henry David Thoreau. You know, I, I'm a product or, or Ella Baker from the freedom movement. You know, I'm a product of, of, of this country in so many ways, even though I'm not a citizen of it. Um, it's the nature of American empire. It runs. Sure, yeah, without that. Huh? Um, uh, so... I was I was offered at the end of my my the end of my fellowship an, an extension to work at the Council on Middle East Studies and to organize some colloquiums. I've been doing a lot of cultural organizing work over the years, and I I ran a colloquium on on uh, searching for the Muslim avant garde, thinking about thinking about cutting edge contemporary art through the lens of of, of, of a Muslim Islamic uh, Islamic background. Um, so that was that that was that was really really interesting. Um, I ran a, a national roundtable on countering violent extremism, where we had prominent critics and um, proponents of CVE policy, particularly under the Obama administration. Um, and I had the honor of working with Peter Mandeville on that. All to say is that a, a kind of a body of work started developing at Yale. And then the Council on Middle East Studies came back to me and asked me to write their education strategy for their Title VI application. And... and um, that application came through successfully, and so they offered me another year to stay to coordinate the cultural literacy work. But at the same time, I'd started working with the Innovation Center, and I think in some ways closest to my heart was that I had started imagining alongside uh, our chaplain, Omar Bajwa, what it would look like to have within and under the, the Social Justice Center at Yale, which is called the Dwight Hall Center for Social Justice and Public Service, a dedicated... Muslim leadership training space hmm. because what I was seeing on campuses especially as we were coming to the first years of the 45th president's administration was um, was a kind of a fear and, and, a, and a timidity among Muslim students trying to find how their Islamic identity was intersecting with their Americanness with being in, in this privileged position as Yale students and so we had this idea for something called the Muslim Leadership Lab at Yale that would be kind of a, a kind of a more open space than the MSA or the chaplaincy in the sense that anyone who self-identified as Muslim was welcome, but also those of people who are our allies who may not have been confessionally Muslim, but felt an affinity to the Muslim community could also be part of it. And that we would go through a process of kind of rigorous stress testing, training, getting a sense of what we needed to lift our collective leadership capacity. And, and I, I'm going to digress for just, just 30 seconds because I think it's important to, to state what leadership means, especially in institutions like Yale, which are all about, you know, this pretentious idea of leadership. The Ivy Leagues are all about leadership, service, legacy. You are the masters of the universe. We are producing the next leaders of the world and Supreme Court justices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my sense of it was, was based on two things. One is that there is a prophetic call to leadership that is for each of us. Each one of us is a shepherd. Each one of us is asked to take care of what they are shepherding. I believe in my heart and in my soul that the prophetic call to leadership extends to each and every one of us. Each and every one of us in our lives have the capacity for service and leadership. And there are times when we must lead and there are times when we must serve. And those things actually are very close together as we know.
The second thing, and this was uh, really uh, on my appreciation and, and um, allegiance in some ways to the principles of the freedom movement, the principles of the civil rights movement, which has shaped so many of us and for which we owe a great deal of debt um, to, uh, to our sisters, uh, brothers, um, and, and history uh, of the African-American peoples, um, is that I really became moved by the work of Ella Baker, who, you know, was the leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And Ella Baker's vision of leadership was so unique. She believed that we didn't need another Moses after the death of uh, Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King, that we needed a community of Moseses. Mm that we needed a community of people that could rise to leadership when the, when the time called. It wasn't a leaderless revolution. It was what is called a leaderful revolution. Mm. I love that, Sidi. I That changed my life. Reading Ella Baker, honestly, changed my life. I read, I read that, I'm like, it just, the truth of it just sort of struck me so sharply and was such a dissident voice. Um, in a world so obsessed with saviors, you know? Mm. Um, I felt like, wow. And, and the more I read Ella, it was really around how do we build our capacity? And so taking the prophetic call to leadership and Ella's very practical, contemporary experience of leadership, we started developing the Muslim Leadership Lab around these two poles. And, and so that it would be a place where we would spiritually edify the idea of leadership, but then also have a process of training that we'd go through. Alhamdulillah, we're in the second cohort of that now. Uh, inshallah, we, there's a commitment to, to continue. We're fundraising for it right now for next year, inshallah, uh, that'll come to fruition. Um, and we wanted it also to be fund, funded by the community. This is not, I didn't want, we didn't want this to be just a mere gift from the campus. This is important that we invest in our projects because once we prove the success of them, then that support will come. And Alhamdulillah, we've begun to build that institutional support around the program. And so Alhamdulillah, this year I've arrived at, a, at, a, at an interesting place. Um, I, I, was, uh, I was appointed as lecturer in Islamic studies at the Yale Divinity School. Um, beginning uh, last August. Um, inshallah khair, our hope is that continue at least for the next two years. Inshallah. The Muslim Leadership Lab is, is, is running and we're developing it and we're continuing to think about how we can take the lab model, especially this year, uh, inshallah, um, to be able to take that model and to basically uh, write a roadmap for other campuses to develop similar programs that are campus-based. Um, you and I know, Siddi, because we were involved in campus activism, we know the potential of campus levels Muslim student activism. What you learn on the campuses, the experience of community, if it's successful, really will carry on to, to, to life, will really carry on into our work, hmm. uh, into our communities. I look, you know, uh, uh, Imam Omar Bajwa and, and his wife Lisa organize this most amazing conference every year, the Ivy Muslims Conference. This sounds terribly pretentious, but it isn't in the sense that you have these amazing students who are coming from all kinds of backgrounds, right? Mm. Go to the Ivies and I see 160 of them in the room and we're organizing conversations and coffee house discussions. And, and I've been working on this conference with Imam Omar for the last uh, three years under, under his leadership and vision. Man, I am struck, Tarek, by the incredible intellectual, spiritual energy of these students. And I think to myself, 
if we were to able to activate, uh, help direct, work with on vision mm. these students, 160 students can change the change the world. It's like untapped change, resource. Country. It's like an untapped uh, resource. Yes, it's totally untapped, and they're so committed. This is the, the beautiful thing about this generation city that I'm that I'm so excited about is they are just they don't have the conversations anymore about America and American Muslim and voting and belonging and where do I come. It doesn't know, you know. Especially the immigrant students, the African American students are way ahead of us. Sure, sure. They have a different sense of history. We 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 owe it to to not just to learn but to be led by the leaders of, of those communities who understand what it means to be American and, and, and Muslim and also to fight oppression and all of that. But, but I look at that group of students and I'm like, this is, this is the vanguard for mercy and compassion and grace and generosity in the world that needs it. These are mercy warriors who are going to go out and change the world through hard effort who are going to have the intelligence and the vision, who are going to rally communities, who are going to be teachers and mentors to others. Why aren't we harnessing this? Where is the investment on our campuses? Where is the investment in our universities? Where is the investment in Next Generation? We were involved in things like MSA National. Sure. We were involved in those kinds of issues. We knew, I think, 15, 20 years ago, in the late 90s, we knew that what was happening because we see our friend group. I look around and see all the people who are leaders in MSA and are leaders in their communities. All the people who develop those experience on campuses, 90% of them are out there doing amazing work, teaching, building, uh, an incredible resource. So I, my vision and our vision for the leadership lab, inshallah, is that is that it becomes a, a kind of a contemporary model of how we can campus organize around around kind of building the service, uh, this call to service and, and, and leadership. And in terms of my teaching at YDS, I'm a bit of a unicorn. I don't have a PhD or, or a master's degree in Islamic studies, but they call me a professor of practice, you know. Alhamdulillah, uh, with, with, with honor to my scholar, to the scholars who, uh, who, who, who deigned to teach me, um, you know, this last sort of 26, 25 years of, of learning um, and sitting with and, and, and reading with uh, has meant that um, uh, I'm able to design, I've been able to design a class uh, this year, the first Introduction to Islam class actually based at the Div School and as long as anyone can remember Yale Divinity School is a is a very different kind of divinity school uh, than sure, Harvard yeah, or others very, very Christian very deeply engaged in Protestant Christianity although there's a significant number of Catholic students and so this is the first course really taught by a Muslim in the Divinity School and based in the school that that that's happened in a long time and um, the response has been really incredible uh, the students have been amazing I've learned so much from them um, I've been challenged by them, and I hope I've, I've challenged them in, in return. We've gone to Sufi dargas together and, and, and prayer services together, and they've gotten a very visceral, <laughs> very visceral full-body experience of Islam <laughs> through, so, this, through this uh, course. Man, I have two follow-up questions for you. One, yes, please. If, you, if somebody wants to learn more about Ella Baker, what would you recommend they start with? Oh, uh, there's a there's a wonderful uh, there's a wonderful book. Let me just let me just bring it up, City, um, and I'll and I'll give you the I'll give you the name. It's in my bookshelf, uh, but I will I will look it up now. Um, and I will I'll include that in the episode notes so if people want to follow please, up. And... Uh, please please do. Um, 
There's the Ella Baker Center, uh, which people can go to online, but there's one particular book, um, and you know, in our, yes, here it is. Um, it's called Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement. Um, and uh, it's written uh, by Barbara Ransby. That's it. Okay. Barbara Ransby's book, Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement, A Radical Democratic Vision is I would say one of the one of the really uh, an, an important secondary work and it really um, in in ways that are I mean really stunning Barbara Ransby's a very good writer um, she really captures the the time that Ella Baker lived in but also like how Ella Baker as a woman within a very masculine leadership structure of the civil rights movement was developing ideas around leadership and and you know she started at the grassroots. She was organizing in communities on the ground and, and hearing those stories and the clarity with which she speaks is, is really amazing. So it's a great, it's a really great book. And I really highly recommend it to anyone who's really interested in understanding the breadth of what the freedom movement has bequeathed to all of us. You know, the, 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 this, this kind of, uh, the, I mean, this, this is this, this is leadership, real leadership mm. in action. And it was stress tested. This is not stuff that people were just yeah, writing yeah. about in leadership manuals. This is stuff that they were doing, which makes it so different than the stuff that we pick up on the self-help shelf and these days. The second you know? follow-up question is, if somebody wants to learn more about the leadership lab and or possibly support, where can they go to do that? Oh, it's a really good question. We're, we're, the, we're the process of developing um, uh, our Ramadan campaign right now. But I hope in the in the podcast, feel free to include my my email address to the, um, okay. and people can email me directly. Um, and I'm happy to send out uh, information. We should have our, our kind of web presence up in the in the next few weeks. Things have been delayed with with the current situation that we're in now. But yeah, we we well, hopefully love to by have, the time I, I edit and I upload it, we, we can include that information. It would, it'd be great. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely try my very best to, you, to you make got sure me that, excited that that's about ready. It. You got me excited about it. So I, <laughs> okay, well, we'd love to have you come, inshallah, oh, once you know, things when, are back to normal. Yeah, I'd love for you to spend to normal, some time definitely. with the students. I mean, I remember being a college student, you know, idealistic, but also aware of my idealism, realizing that I am biased, that I'm young and in college, but also feeling like, you know, so what? Why can't we change the world? And, uh, you know, there's something refreshing about that. If, if, if you are aware of, of the blind spots, I think that yes. I was fortunate that I was aware of some of my blind spots, not all of them, uh, but there were some students I remember that weren't and, you know, they got in trouble and, and, you know, they went down a path that I would, you know, they probably would have regretted. Uh, Alhamdulillah, I was spared some of that and, and I think you were as well. But I think tapping into this resource, this untapped resource is, is brilliant, really. And you, you're getting, I mean, I remember... When I got to Princeton, now as a graduate student, married a child and two on the way because we had twins. <laughs> you know, looking looking at the at the um, Muslim undergraduates uh, on campus, I was also very impressed. I was like, wow, you know, I, you know, these are much better quality than when I was an undergraduate. <laughs> definitely, <student."> definitely. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I think this is a very smart move, and and I'm very hopeful to see what will come will come out of it. I mean, Inshallah, we're we're really excited about it, and and I think it's the future. It needs to be part of the institutional infrastructure of American Islam in general. Um, I, I I I believe that, and we we are actually ignoring it at our peril. 
Um, we 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 want to energize a, a, a generation. And, you know, again, we learned from the experience of African American students in a profound way. Fifty years ago, they established. Fifty-one years ago now, they established the Afro American Cultural Center at Yale. And those students said to themselves, it's not enough for us to be black at Yale. That's not enough of an achievement. If we are not leaving a legacy for all of the black students to come and the mm. communities that we come from. And that is the call. It's not enough. And I tell the Yale students and some of them I, I know don't like it uh, because there's a pressure. It says you're not here just for yourself. You're here for all those who couldn't be here, yeah. who didn't have the opportunities, who didn't have the blessings. Who who didn't have the 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 the, the, the scope to to work as you, as as you did, and many of you have come through 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 fire and brimstone to get here. Think about all the other incredibly talented, intelligent students who can't be here. You have to be here for them. You have to create the the environment so that they can come. And you got to go out there and harness their intelligence, their creativity, their spiritual uh, energy. So it's not enough to say, I'm a Yale student. I'm going to become a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I'm sorry. It, it, yeah. it doesn't work that way. Not I, in the time that we live I in. I mean, it kind of reminds me of that hadith, you know, whoever is not concerned with the affairs of the Muslims is not from them. So I think, I think yes. we also have to remember we have a bigger responsibility Absolutely. to help you know, the wider community in, in whatever way we can. And it's a familial, it's, it's, it's a familial responsibility, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's close. It's close. We're like, you know, this, 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 this is care, a sense of care. I, I love that. I mean, Hamid Dabashi, um, who is, who has all of his interesting quirks and controversies, uh, said in his book, uh, being, being Muslim in the world, um, that, that when he saw, the world um, and tried to remove it of its binaries. When he saw the Muslim in the world, he said, "He said the word that came to him was care. Nice. That 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 it was care. This this feeling of care for the world and those in it is deeply central to what it means to be Muslim." Well, Rahman, I got through like one fifth of what I wanted to talk to you about. So because I I have a feeling this conversation could go on for like another two hours. So rather than do that. With your permission, I'd like to just like call halftime, maybe. Sure. Or, or quarter. Not... I won't say halftime. This is just the end of the first quarter. And then <laughs> and, and maybe maybe later in the summer we can come back on to discuss some of this other stuff. That would be beautiful. Um, I'd I'd be I'd be honored to. And I'm and I'm so excited by your new initiative, Silitharic. I think uh, this is not just a, a right thing, but but uh, you're one of the right people to do it. Well, so it I, means a lot I'm, coming from you. I, I have, uh, you know, off offline, I'll, I'll be sending you some stuff, inshallah, in the, in the coming months to get your input and review. And I'm looking for your red markings on my drafts. <laughs> Uh, I, will, I will try to do my best. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to ch channel my inner editor. My inner yeah, producer. and you know, to stress test because you, 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 you're always going to think that your idea is the greatest idea in the world. But then when, when you step outside <laughs> and you share it, somebody's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. You know, Sometimes you just need to hear that. I think that's also I, uh, important. I, I, I hear you. So thank you, you. thank you for making the time. I really do appreciate oh, it. Oh no, Jazakallah Khair. You're very, very welcome. It was, it was an honor, and I look forward to I look forward to part two. Inshallah, inshallah. <laughs> One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and manage all the things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Friday Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading working on and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. 
If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up. (laughs) 